Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Nick Taliska, Jim DePasquale, and Mark Sankey. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing free cooling, and uh, coincidentally, where we are recording, it is pretty chilly outside, so perfect timing for this discussion. So as always with our podcast, let's kind of just define what free cooling is, and again, like some of our other podcast episodes, this is a pretty self-explanatory topic and name, but a 10,000 foot overview is in, you know, I looked this up and found it online is defined as the process of allowing the building load to bypass mechanical cooling and exchange its heat with lower temperature outdoor air. Um, Don't know if you guys kind of have anything else you want to add to it, but pretty straightforward definition, I would say, right? Oh, so one of the largest free cooling projects that I am even aware of uh, is right here in upstate New York for Cornell University, where they're taking lake water into a large scale plate and frame set of heat exchangers and using it to uh, supplement their chill water plant, basically. So there's no outdoor air involved. It's all deep uh, finger lake water uh, heat exchanger comes up you know, into the plate and frames that are in a building at the south end of the lake and then piped up to the campus. And the other side of it is there are many, many free cooling applications next to rivers where, you know, either power plants or process water is used with a minimum thermal impact. They dilute the the thermal impact so as to not impact the wildlife and they use river water for free cooling for processes and even for uh, I think uh, even this, the uh, county of Monroe uses river water for their condenser water for their chill water plant. Yeah, those are interesting applications right there. Yeah, so expanding the definition would be the, the naturally occurring colder air or water temperature. Yeah, yep, definitely. You guys are correct with that. Cooler, co- lower temperature, medium water, air, right. whatever it was. But that's a great point, Mark and Nick, just doesn't have to be air absolutely can be water and it could be probably a lot more effective if it is if you have it available well it's interesting if i can just add here as far as terminology you know my when somebody says free cooling i'm instantly thinking about airside and i think that might just be the either the the discipline i'm in but and then for water would be you know they commonly call it economizing never quite understood the terminology and even free cooling isn't free, but we'll get into that more. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nick, I guess I guess to add on to that, I, I have similar understanding as you. When I hear free cooling, I kind of think of two big areas of that where you have water side economizers and air side economizers. I think that's just generally speaking, the two, I just want to lop everything of every form of free cooling into two big categories. I think you could probably find a spot in one of those two categories for it. Absolutely agreed. Yeah, absolutely correct. So like our heat recovery podcast episode in our discussion, obviously it's not, there's not necessarily a threshold of, well, maybe there is if you guys want to talk about it, but to me, like we talked about in our heat recovery one, there's not necessarily a threshold for it, you know, your water or your air needs to be below this temperature for free, free cooling it just needs to be cooler than whatever you're trying to cool down to utilize this free cooling and obviously the the colder it is the the more effective and probably uh, cost effective it is as well but i don't know as you guys like when you think of free cooling is there a is there a temperature that comes to mind necessarily or no Depending on whether you're using you know a dry cooler or a actual tower it's it's really it can be very much more dependent on wet bulb temperature than on dry bulb temperature. Uh, we put in process free cooling all the way down into Georgia that uh, runs three or 4,000 hours a year with a wet bulb uh, temperature below 55 degrees wet bulb and really made a significant impact on uh, lots of processes because people always think, oh, it's just too hot for effective free cooling, but it's really all about the wet bulb. Well, and I'll expand this too. I would say, I'd answer your question, Clayton, and say it's not about the temperature because you talked about today where most of us are, it's pretty chilly out, but I don't have a use for that cold air right now. 
So it does nothing for me. So it's, it's, yeah. it's all about the Delta T really, you know, yep. where do you need it? And yep. when do you need it? You need? Great points guys. So what, and, and expanding off of that, then Nick, like what do we, what are some common applications for free cooling conditioning a space, um, process water, chilled water, you know, anything else you guys want to add to that list? Well, there's lots and lots of variables in all of those. I mean, condition right. of space, you look at data centers that are such enormous heat generators, you know, their requirement for free cooling. I mean, that that's the metric that they use for, are we being efficient? Are we free cooling most of the time? How much of the cooling has to be mechanically produced? And, and even processes, there are so many processes when you get into manufacturing and injection molding, anything that requires quench air or quench water. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have to use mechanical cooling to produce those, uh, your cost of production goes up. I guess in, in comfort cooling applications, we're, we're limited to supplier temperatures for typical air conditioning systems, which will limit you to... Um, I find more specific type of types of buildings. You know, if you're if you're trying to do free cooling, a good building type for that is like a healthcare building where you have a year-round cooling load requirement. Mm-hmm. It's it's an area where you'll often find waterside economizers and a, a big way to you know create more opportunity and savings on your free cooling and economizer is to incorporate su- supplier temperature reset on your air handling systems. That way. You know, maybe in the winter when your humidity and your overall cooling loads are not as great as in the summer, you might be able to reset your supplier temperature, you know, upwards from 55, you know, start approaching 60 degrees. And that way you're able to take advantage of warmer temperatures that may be available to keep your chillers and refrigeration equipment off and be rejecting that heat directly to outdoors. And like Mark was saying, Clay, I mean, there are so many applications to oh, it yeah. that, uh, you know, I, I guess I think of it in terms of you know, free cooling is good anytime you're trying to cool people or processes or, or products, I guess. And what, what was Cornell doing it again, Mark, with their? Oh, they're scale? using it for chilled water. Chilled yeah. water exclusively. Jim, okay. I don't have that number in my head, but I thought it was a, a huge number, 20,000 tons. So it's a 20,000 ton chiller plant yeah. and they're pulling uh, raw water deep, you know, from the deepest part of Cayuga Lake and running it through plate and frame heat exchangers. There's absolutely zero mm. refrigeration and yeah, they don't have cooling towers. I mean, it is just, just that's just, that's the, as Mark said, the biggest free cooling application I've seen, you know, especially for comfort cooling, which you know, they're, they're mainly using it for. So you're probably you know, getting water. like what 45 degree water somewhere around there probably coming in. You think colder right. than I, that? I want to say year round. Yeah. Like even in the summer, they're, they're at the deepest parts of the lake. It's Cayuga, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that's the deepest finger lake. And they're they're able to pull water from the low low 40 degree range in the middle of summer. And that's what makes that possible. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> I mean... Just yeah. completely ingenious too to say, okay, we have that. Yep. Now, now, um, completely off sub, not off subject, but kind of off script. Like, you got to pump all of that, right? So, I assume right. you're pumping it up three hundred, whatever your elevation is, though. So you're you're definitely paying more money in pumping. Oh, but it's a closed loop, so it's it's not like you have your you have that much lift because yeah, that's still- true. If it's closed loop, you're you're correct on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and even if it is open loop, you know, your only pump that the elevation head you would take into account would would be the top of the water level of the lake because you're getting aided the whole way down to the bottom of the lake. Yep. Mm. You know, that, that, that static head will, will equal, equalize that. No, nope, so. that makes sense. Okay. I just uh, Googled it just for clarification of the podcast. Seneca Lake's the deepest. Cayuga's the second. Seneca's 618 feet deep. Wow. But still, you're you're down at 300, 400 feet of depth. That water is not heated by the sun. I mean, the thermocline is just basically Mm -hmm. keeping it right there at, you know, 42 or 45 degrees. Yeah, that is impressive. So what are some... Um, 
I guess, what can you use for free cooling applications? Like, you know, again, what comes, we talked about this and you're going to use a plate and frame heat exchanger, uh, dry coolers. You can just use your air handler and do an air side economizer. Um, you know, what else, what else can be utilized kind of in free cooling applications or are those kind of the big few then? Well, those are the big ones. And I think then it comes down to the creativity and application of the, of the design team. And, you know, we've done many projects where it wouldn't seem like we can, we can use free cooling. Um, for instance, you have return water uh, coming back from a process that's 75 degrees and they need uh, 55 degrees on the entering side. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty straightforward to put a plate and frame heat exchanger on the water leaving the cooling tower when you can produce less than 75 degrees on the cooling tower, but not quite 55 and strip off part of that load on a continuous basis free and reduce the load on the chiller. And we've done that many times uh, very successfully, just uh, basically increasing the amount of of, uh, free cooling, even though it's not 100% of the load it's still a portion of the load for you know some some part of the year until you get into the winter mm-hmm. and can take the full load on the free cooling side. So there's, as you said, Clayton, so many different ways to do it. It uh, it is well worth the time and attention to um, understand what the loads and what the sinks are and be able to match them up, even if it's not for a hundred percent of the load, take off part of the load on a full-time basis. So how do uh, heat wheels and heat pipes fit into this scheme as well? Well, I know that there's some chillers out there that will employ that strategy kind of internally, where instead of using a plate and frame heat exchanger connected to the condenser water system, uh, or I'm sorry, the chilled water system, they will actually turn the compressors off and have natural refrigerant migration inside the chiller when the condenser water temperature is at a temperature colder than the evaporator side. That's pretty slick. Yeah. I've yeah. Read a, I mean, I remember reading about this and, and studying it a little bit, but I've never seen that applied anywhere as to my recollection. So I've never used it. I've considered it, but in the, the one time I considered it, the chiller um, it's not able to, the, the load capacity is greatly reduced. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. I was like, what does that do to your load capacity when you're not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, if I remember correctly, it was less than half. Right. So it didn't it didn't work out. We, we went a different route, but. No, and, and Nick, to your point, you know, heat wheels and uh, particularly heat pipes, all those things, the same devices that we use in heat recovery, well, free cooling is basically rejecting heat and they're all applicable. And I've never applied a heat wheel in a free cooling application, aside from HVAC, uh, you know, where you're, where you're running, especially when you're in dehumidification mode and you have a desiccant wheel. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, they all apply. Yeah. If anything, if you have a heat wheel, sometimes we try to bypass that, you know, if we require an economizer right. um, and you have an ERV in the system, a lot of times you'll be required to install a bypass or when free cooling is available. Now, something that I haven't seen uh, commercially available, but it, it may very well be at this point, but, and I know I've said before on some of these podcasts, you know, the future is absorption cooling, which I still believe. Mm-hmm. And I said the future is heat recovery, which I still believe. I'm going to say the future is free cooling. Because they're doing a lot of stuff, and we're obviously going to get in talking about enthalpy and latent heat at some point here. But uh, phase change materials, there's a there's a slew of uh, interesting research going on with uh, thermal storage and using phase change materials, which, as the name implies, you know, work with uh, capturing latent heat and, and anyway. So, but if you look on some of these. Uh, I don't know, like SSRN, this is a great website where they put out all these academic research papers for like, it's meant for like, you know, quick dissemination of stuff. And there's some really uh, interesting things out there, quite a bit of it. I do not understand one of them I was looking at. The abstract talks about 
focused on the synthesis of eutectic mixture of capric and palmitic acid as a phase change material for human comfort temperature and microencapsulation with cross-linked polystyrene using emulsion polymerization. So a lot of high-level stuff going on here, but I think they're, they're, this, this kind of research has been going on for a good 5, 10 years, so it's quite possible next update we do to this particular episode may include PCMs. Wow, that's a lot yeah. to absorb right there. I was, I was kind of, you know, it's interesting as we do these things and do a little research and remember things and learn new things. You know, it's funny, um, and I know Mark maybe can chime in too a little bit, but do we know, again, our, we had our past professor, my past professor on this that plays a large role in a startup company from my college, they do, they do similar things with um, membranes to use as, I guess it's more heat recovery than free cooling, but um, all that technology is super interesting. It's I guess the, the biggest hurdle is like the reliability and time, you know, in industry that's probably limiting a lot of that stuff right now. Like it's there, it can do it. People just got to come to trust it and know that it'll last for however long. Right. Yeah. And definitely a move towards more of the, the chemistry aspect yep. of these. I mean, I know obviously all this stuff deals with some heavy chemistry and yeah. dynamics and all that, but I mean, this is just some very interesting, more magical things in this well, space. Way more chemistry than slapping a, a dry cooler outside and, you know, running water through that. Yeah. Let's run a fan over this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely way more chemistry involved with with the applications you're talking about which is super interesting yeah man like when we come back to this in 10 years and i'm listening to the the glory days it'll be interesting to see where where things have gone yeah we'll see remember when they were piping water out of cayuga lake yeah (laughs) (laughs) yep yep well and go back listen uh free cooling has been around a long time and in in many ways, it has been refined and become more acceptable. When you go to the Niagara River, for instance, when all the chemical companies were there, that that river was basically their cooling water, their wastewater, everything went in that river back in the early days. And that right. happened all over the country. Uh, Detroit, Pittsburgh, you know, free cooling, heck yeah, it was free cooling because as soon as it was, went out the pipe, it was away from our doorstep. And, you know, it, it's taken decades for us to come to our senses, realize that, hey, we have to be more responsible. Um, there's such a thing as thermal pollution as well as the chemical pollution. And it still can be done. But, you know, again, back to the Cornell University, that's a perfect example of responsible heat recovery where, uh, you know, imagine put a 20,000 ton free cooling plant in the, the planning, the siting, the engineering, all the stuff that they had to go through to be able to, you know, prove that the environmental impact was negligible and uh, was, was suitably positive based on the amount of energy consumption that was uh, eliminated. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder how much, uh, yeah, the influence of, like you said, the thermal pollution you know, so you're obviously oh. returning, but you know, this is a big, uh, heat sink, essentially a lake. Yeah. It's I remember. Big... Oh, go ahead, Nick. Sorry. No, no I was just going to say, I remember hearing very early on in my career, somebody said to me, is it easier to control the temperature of a puddle or a lake? And the idea was that it's going to me thinking about energy transfer. And I think we were kind of looking at heat pumps in the building and ideally you'd want those warmer interior spacers, you know, spaces mm-hmm. to be cooled, but your perimeter areas might need that heating in the loop. So you could design them to kind of transfer the heat. So I would imagine there's a minimal input from or uh, impact from putting the warmer water back into the lake of that size. Yeah. Yeah, right? that's true. But it is, it's kind of impressive, not impressive, but like very small degree changes can definitely have some large impacts in that so well uh, that's a great point around around where i live in pennsylvania where's the best fishing yeah right around the outlet of the cooling towers hey we same with (laughs) yeah no i agree i was about yeah i was about to say one man's thermal pollution (laughs) is another man's fishing (laughs) hole that's right that's right 
That's why I still don't like wind farms. They raise the <laughs> the temperature of the surface. Okay, now enough of that. Enough of my blasphemy. So I think the point here, though, is that yeah. the, the law of the the laws of thermodynamics range yeah. no matter what the delta T is or the temperature. The the energy is conserved. So with that being said, the laws of thermodynamics. Somebody and you know, somebody's got a. I bet you Mark's got like six of them around him right now. Psych charts. Let's talk about the concept of evaporative cooling then, because I know we alluded to it, you know, especially Mark alluded to it when he was talking about um, the wet bulb temperature, right? The wet bulb temperature, the wet bulb temperature, that's the biggest thing. But explain that to our listeners, if you may. Well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, everybody knows about the psych chart. I mean, we were all, we were all <laughs> created with our own built-in cooling system that says, Okay, when when you get too warm, you will start to perspire, and that perspiration will evaporate, lowering your body temperature. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been around for a long time. Or you know, uh, I work outside in the summertime. I'll put a you know a wet neckerchief around my neck to uh, cool me off. So the wet bulb temperature. I mean, if the the reason they call it wet bulb is because you take a wetted bulb and put it over a, the registering end of the reading end of the thermometer and you would put it's called a sling psychrometer because you would actually spin this uh, sock covered thermometer that is wetted around on a sling until uh, it reached a stable temperature and that would be usually unless it's uh, saturated air would be many degrees lower than the temperature of an unwetted thermometer bulb. So that temperature is the is the lowest possible temperature you can get to using evaporation, you know, the wet bulb temperature. Yeah, I so, thought it was oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh god. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I uh, with all our fancy software nowadays, I don't have to do the whole line up your lines on the psych chart, but like you can get a pretty low wet bulb. This is just for our listeners that may not have a feel for everything, but like type it in on my software 70 degree dry bulb at 50 percent relative humidity has a 58 degree wet bulb temperature exactly so you know people think oh it's warm out still but that obviously is not what's driving our evaporative cooling and our free cooling necessarily so and those extra few degrees difference between wet bulb and dry bulb you know that's what justifies using water cooled chillers versus air cooled chillers, yeah. you know, when you get up into bigger equipment, yep. the increasing first cost is justified by the energy savings of those few degrees of, you know, between wet bulb and dry bulb temperatures on your condenser mm-hmm. water it makes a big difference. Right. Your compressor lift goes down, the efficiency goes up and everything's yeah. happy. Yeah. <laughs> so just like I said, I thought it was worth kind of outlining that and explaining that for maybe our listeners that don't have a, full feel for that but absolutely correct maybe we want to talk about modern chillers then now and i know jim talked about this a little bit but i don't want to i don't know how to say it back in the day before my time maybe (laughs) i don't know these centrifugal chillers couldn't handle lower inlet water temps on the condenser side right and that made it a little bit hard, obviously a lot harder to operate and changed the, how the, how efficient they were. And now these chillers, you can have, you can have super low inlet water temps. Can have inverted. Yeah. Inverted even. Right. So I don't know, again, maybe a discussion point for the podcast, but worth explaining kind of how that works. And maybe Jim, you already did a little bit, but I don't know if we want to go deeper into that. Yeah. So I had um, a project at a local industrial park where we had a requirement for 40 degree chilled water year round. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to look into free cooling um, because free cooling was not being used at the time. The existing chiller plant was using steam turbine driven centrifugal chillers running very inefficiently. You know, these things were in hot gas bypass most of the time, just very, very, very low COPs. There was a lot of room for improvement. But what was holding me back was, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, was that 40 degree requirement. Typically, when you do water side economizer and comfort cooling, you could reset your chilled water supply temperature 
you know, maybe higher from 44, start approaching 50 mm-hmm. degrees. You don't need that lower temperature typically in the winter time, right. you know, the, the humidification load is just yep. not there. I didn't have that um, available to me. So when I was looking into free cooling, I'm stuck with 40 degrees on the supply side. My tower water temperatures were going to have to be in the 30s to give me an, an approach that would work for free mm-hmm. cooling. And the combination of very low hours available, where that was the case, as well as you know, tower manufacturers, if I remember correctly, I don't think anyone wanted to run their towers below 38 degrees because now we risk freezing mm-hmm. the towers. Yep. That's what led me to deciding a, the magnetic bearing chillers were a great application here because you know it's not exactly free cooling but it's very very close right. um the the chiller at full load with lower condensed water temperatures you know below 50 degrees mm-hmm. you could be at or below 0.2 kw per wow. ton oh, which is incredible yeah, we call that bargain cooling um, <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 purring so and a lot of that has to do with the new technology, you know, the magnetic bearing compressors, mm-hmm. um, better um, refrigerant management. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no there's no oil to worry yep. about in these machines. That's the big thing; they're oilless. So that in the, you're saving on cost because now it, it is a, a big cost, especially in the bigger systems, to pipe in and add, you know, plate and frame heat yep. exchangers. That that's a big cost when you get into the bigger piping. You know that that adds up very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, and it and it's a often overlooked maintenance issue. Yep. The maintenance on those is essential, especially if you don't have sand filters or something else on them. And it just is neglected. So people start to whine about, oh, my free cooling doesn't work anymore. Well, it's because you, you got to maintain it. Heat exchangers half full of mud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People they forget that you know an open. An open circuit induced draft cooling tower is essentially an air cleaner. That's right. Right. Like it is just running. It's water is just running through open air and collecting all that dirt and dust and cottontails. And it's just, uh, it's a big air filter, That's you know, right. water air cleaner. Yeah. It's just like on a Ford 2N, the oil bath air filter where it bubbles, <laughs> yeah. the, well, bubbles the, the air right through the oil. So, how does, and maybe this is a naive question to ask, but like, how does that work with that kind of um, cooling tower, you know, being open air and all that stuff. And you're trying to utilize free cooling in the winter time, like say it's 20 degrees out, you can still run that or no, not at all. Yeah. I mean, if it's designed, you, if you know, you're going to be, well, I guess, taking a step back when you're specifying a cooling tower, you want it. You want to know, are yes, you going to be right. running this in the yes, winter? Yes, yes, Or are okay. you going to be yep. I agree you know, with that. draining it, mm-hmm. right? So typically you have um, basin heaters in the event you're not running it to keep whatever if you have. If you don't have a remote sump and your sump is part of the tower mm-hmm. and could freeze, you want to have some sort of sump mm-hmm. heaters. Um, but yeah, if it's really cold out, you'd pro- most likely want to specify VFD fans on your cooling tower and either okay. modulate them yep. down. Jeez. Turn them up, turn them off, or if you start to, a lot of these have defrost cycles, where they'll spin the fans backwards right. to you know thaw any ice buildup. Okay, on the intake. So they have the technology kind of because that's like the first thing that comes to my mind is okay, it's super cold out, and we want to utilize this cold air for free cooling, and you have your you know water side like that, and um, yeah, just to me, it seems like it turned into an ice block pretty quick, but. Well, it, we've done many, many in process plants where they understand if your load goes away, you have you need to. to drain the tower. Yeah, right. Uh, and that's a big thing. Obviously, you need the load to keep those temperatures, whatever, right. high enough to not freeze. So, obviously, like everything, all of this comes down to money, right? For free cooling. So, is is there? Uh, a, again, I don't really want to know how I want to ask the question the best way, but it's, it's cold out. Great. We want to use free cooling, but at what point is it not economical to do that? Or what, like, what do you have to look at and go through on that, on that end economically to say, this is worth doing this. Obviously you have to understand whatever temperatures 
you're dealing with how often they are like where we are it's cold many months of the year so probably a little bit more available for certain types of free cooling but yeah i don't know just go through kind of that thought process for me guys well there are a myriad of factors that go into that yeah certainly the the host the customer the client uh, has some internal rate of return that you have to be able to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are considerations as to whether they're, you know, is it a new design or is it a, a retrofit? Does the life cycle of the process uh, line up with the life cycle of the heat the, the heat recovery process? And then you have to remember that even though there is a cutoff point, these things, there are economies of scale. So, you know, if it's one half inch hot, water line that uh, we want to do free cooling on probably not worthwhile. Right. Um, you know, when you get to 400, 500, a thousand, 2000, 3000 tons, the economics start to make more sense as long as you have the run times to support it and the weather conditions to support it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, because we've modeled a number of different heat recovery projects uh, using historical data and, especially in the South, you, you really have to consider the most recent data because there's certainly you know, some validity to the global warming scenario. And in some cases it's pretty significant mm-hmm. and you wanna make sure that, okay, I'm not using you know, 15 year average because it will definitely skew your numbers. But you know, it all goes down to, in my opinion, the hours of operation and the size of the project because no matter what you have pumps, you have filters, you have heat exchangers, right. but to put in a little tiny free cooling project, you'll spend as much time engineering that as a, you know, a thousand ton project. No, I, I agree. And, and to add on to what Mark was just saying, another important factor is the type of HVAC system in the type of free cooling, because if you have a large built up variable air volume, air handling system, um, and you, the energy code, has prescriptive requirements um, for free cooling and economizer. Um, on air systems, if you are outside of climate zone one, which is pretty much if you're outside of South Florida, you, there's an, a, typically a requirement for air side economizer when you're five tons or above okay. on your individual cooling systems. You know, there's a lot of exceptions to that when you get in, if you go into the energy code, you'll find a lot of, or, or actually 90.1, there's a lot of exceptions to that, but typically like a five ton rooftop unit or air handler is going to require a hundred percent economizer Mm -hmm. on it. You know, I think when you get into water side economizer and chilled water systems, that's definitely where economies of scale um, come into play. You know, you're not going to find a savings on there on smaller Mm -hmm. systems, but a lot of these, a lot of these systems were, were forced to, you know, do it just based on prescriptive code requirements. You don't even really they save you the, the the effort of having to do some analysis on on some systems in some situations. Just because you live in this area and you have to have a certain amount or Correct. capability. Yeah, and I'm kind of thinking about this too because we're talking about you know free cooling. We have the air side and then the water side. So on the water side, our source could be uh, more water, like the lake example. Right. Or it can be air, you know, mm-hmm. ambient air, but we're still mm-hmm. with water side economizing or free cooling. We're primarily concerned with that, either the source temperature or the wet bulb temperature of the outside air. Right. Is this all right? So I'm thinking through this. Yeah, I uh, think so. Uh, yeah, I would say. So then. Yes. Well, Mark, I agree. Okay. Okay, so then, so then you got to deal with the like the approach temperature. Would that still be called the approach temperature when you're talking about the like a lake cooling or some other water source, right? You can only get the your desired. Well, then it's then it's going to come down to how efficient your heat exchanger is. Yeah, exactly, and, and the same with an open yeah. tower, right? You can only get right. down to I don't know, maybe today it's you know I don't know four or five degrees. You can get away from the actual wet ball. Yeah. Correct. Okay. And I know back when I was looking at a lot of these buildings, I think the approaches were, you know, 12 degrees, 15 degrees, if not more. But so then on like on the air side, then that seems to be more the 
confusion or misapplication that I see is on the dry bulb versus uh, enthalpy economizer, mm-hmm. you know, with the dry we bulb. We start our economizer at a dry bulb temperature rather than look at the enthalpy. Exactly. And looking at, yeah. well, what's going to be the more economical airstream to, to cool the return air or, you know, fresh outside air that we're bringing in. Nick, that is a great point because I see, I feel like I see <laughs> that you. a lot, even in my limited yeah. experience, right? We're going to start economizing at 55 degree outside air temperature or whatever, but it's, you, it could be more economical. Obviously, it depends on the outside air enthalpy and your return air enthalpy to say, what, when can I do that? And I don't know, Mark, does that happen a lot more than, I don't know. seems like it doesn't happen. Honest, much. I hear you complaining about it a lot. Yeah. Well, I complain about everything. <laughs> Maybe complaining wasn't the right word, but you know what I mean? It's like something that is just like. No, I think one of the things that I see in most, uh, I mean, I see it so much. is It's very uh, vexing to me is that unit manufacturers, supplied economizers, maybe 75% of the time they work right out of the box. And within five years, you might as well just take them off and throw them away. It seems like every service tech that comes out has a different opinion about how the economizer should operate. That's the first thing they start to, you know, put their tweak or two. Yeah, and yeah. by the end of year three, nobody knows how the economizer is really working. And it just stays so, at minimum. Yeah, and it just stays at minimum. So I think, you know, in some cases, it's not clearly specified how they should operate. So it's left up to the judgment or, you know, the decision or experience of the uh, installation team and you know there's one mindset and then the first service tech on the job decides they need to modify it because they have a complaint it's too humid inside it's too cold inside it's too whatever and I'm just not a fan of you know the and geez we have two jobs in the last two months that we've been on where the economizers just plain didn't work right yeah uh, and the service tech got out there and the first thing out comes the tweaker and Yep. You'll start, you know. Now, Mark, you, you're talking account. about more uh, packaged units then? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Yeah, yes. no, that would be yeah. my experience now, completely. I think now when you get to the BMS side, you have more flexibility and certainly more visibility in terms of what's happening on the unit. And it's worthwhile to spend the extra few bucks for uh, combination temperature and relative humidity sensors in the return air and the outside air. So you yeah. can do some yep. floating, you know, differential on the enthalpy or, you know, some other more reliable and efficient strategy that can be maintained and observed uh, versus just a, I'll look at the screwdriver out and start to make adjustments. Yeah, Nick, that's just a, a, such a good point too, because if you look at it, maybe at the surface, you could say, why, how, why am I economizing right now? But it's not dependent on, it's dependent on your enthalpy, your outside air enthalpy and returner enthalpy. So you could see outside air temperatures that seem kind of high, but it depends what your return air temperatures and humidity are. So, well, it's the enthalpy. And I know I was on this kick earlier about the whole yeah. phase change materials, but that's really yep. the key there. I mean, it's, you know, like you said, you're getting atomic here with the, the force required to overcome or the work required to overcome forces that hold these atoms or molecules together and you know, heat <laughs> of fusion, heat of vaporization. I yeah, mean, they're fascinating things that I was bored with entirely probably back in school. But mm-hmm. it is really, I find at least, very interesting to get into the science behind a lot of these things of why does this work and understanding why is a steam burn so much worse than a water burn? You know, a water burn at 211 <laughs> versus steam burn at 213, get out of town. And what's the reason there? Because there's latent energy right? Yeah, that's being released yep. onto your skin. So, and, and there's there's a host of things like that. The, the phase change, that is like a huge key with, I think, a lot of the future of uh, energy efficiency, energy conservation. Oh yeah, I co- I completely have to agree with you, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and Nick, I guess just to kind of summarize and add on a little bit to how we control economize like airside economizers, um, I'll, I'll go back to the the energy code. And there's there's more prescriptive requirements for like high limit shutoffs. Um, there's 
a few different strategies for controlling your economizers, fixed dry bulb, differential dry bulb, fixed enthalpy, uh, differential enthalpy. And all that really means is uh, like a fixed dry bulb is probably the simplest and cheap, cheapest first right. cost because all you need is a, a, an outside That's air temp. Time. And depending on the climate zone you're in, uh, for example, uh, like, like a, a 5A up here in uh, upstate New York, you know, or Western New York by the lake where I am, you know, that's a very simple control. If it, the temperature is greater than 70 degrees outside, you are not an economizer. You know, that's all there is to it. And then when you get into more complex forms of economizer control, you could have, you know, differential enthalpy where now you have more sensors. You need to have enthalpy sensors on your, your outdoor air in return. And now we need to mm -hmm. do a comparison that, that just kind of goes back to, yeah, we, we do want to look and do some life cycle cost analysis, but we also have to take into account there's already some prescriptive requirements in the energy code, especially when we're talking comfort cooling. When we get into industrial manufacturing and outside of comfort cooling, we, we tend to enjoy a lot of like, exceptions to the energy code and we have a lot more freedom in exploring different methods of doing things. Yeah, no, great points all around. I mean, it, it kind of touched or makes me think about the the cost of instrumentation and sensors over the yep. years too, where now a differential enthalpy economizer does not seem as ridiculous as it would have 10 years ago or yep. probably less. And they were quite unreliable. I remember early enthalpy sensors that, to kind of Mark's point, if they ever worked, they they quickly got screwed up and you might as well just throw them out. And, and that was actually a question I was going to ask you guys is how how reliable do you find uh, these enthalpy sensors these days? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, we'll, we'll jump in the Wayback Machine for a second. <laughs> and back in the day when uh, pneumatic controls were the king of everything, the relative humidity sensors were first made from horsehair. Uh, where the horsehair would actually shrink and grow based on changes in relative humidity, and then the bleed port on the humidistat would, you know, either increase or reduce the pressure. Then they went to cellulose acetate butyrate, which is cellophane, uh, you know, like you would wrap around a, an old pack of cigarettes, which did the same thing and was then more reliable. And even to the point where they got into electronics, uh, Taylor Instruments made sensors that were CAB and then really in the 70s and 80s, it became impregnated hygroscopic uh, semiconductors that mm. became the uh, mo more reliable and repeatable uh, sensing elements. So now, fast forward to the current time, what we see is basically there's infant mortality where you get one and it goes bad right out of the box, like most electronics. That's you know when you experience an early failure, you just send it back and get a new one. But now when you go to, you know, relatively good instrumentation, you know, uh, Greystone or um, any of those things that you're going to pay, pick a number about 300 bucks for a good combination temperature and relative humidity and add another 50 bucks and order it with miscalibration, they're reliable and they last a long time. So I, I think that more than anything else drives the uh, application, the proper application and use of um, especially floating differential enthalpy or enthalpy control economizers with a BMS. And that sounds dirt, dirt cheap to me, Mark, you know? Oh yeah. Right. I mean, you think about it. It is dirt cheap. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't yeah. need yeah. one for every single unit on a building necessarily. Nope. Mm -hmm. Well, you do you, in the return. Yeah. You need the returns. Right. Yeah. But still, uh, yeah. For that kind of money, uh, you can almost not afford to do it. Um, <laughs> You know, Mark, this is my favorite part of the uh, any episode when we go in your way back machine. <laughs> I do like the history very much, and I also like thinking about the future of these industries. And uh, yeah, the, you know, the, the awesome things, you know, that, that I see is this stuff is so reliable. It's getting smaller, more rugged, more flexible. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, let's see, do I want to use one to five volts? you know, two to 10, four to 20 milliamp, zero to 20 milliamp. And you had to know all that before you even order it. Now you order the thing, it shows up, you set some dip switches and off you go. Yeah. 
No, it, it is crazy. And I think we're, we're like on an exponential curve of technology ad- advancement. So the future is going to just be very impressive, I can imagine. Well, I think it was just last episode, didn't we talk about sensorless uh, pumping? Yeah, yes, yes we did. Yep. Crazy. In the future, you know, we'll have artificial intelligence taking my job and setting up these sensorless pumps. Well, so... Well, we have, we already got artificial intelligence probably in building management BMS systems. And I think that's a whole topic of its own. Uh, yeah, that's a topic of its own because artificial intelligence is, well, uh, Stephen Hawking said artificial intelligence is the single greatest threat to the human race. We got to have a podcast on this. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes, well, we do. Oh, do you know why you said that? It's gonna. It, it's already figuring out how to destroy us once you, once you turn it on. As soon as oh no. Well, yeah, that's no, what he's gonna say. Watch. As soon as you actually have artificial intelligence, the first thing it does is determine how to make itself better, smarter, uh, and within five minutes, it'll determine whether it needs the human species to sustain it. See. No. Wow. Yeah. When Stephen Hawking silence. Says, Sky, Sky Nets <laughs> listening, I'd be careful what you say on his podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Tuning in, everybody. That's what. That's what. I'll be sleeping in my log cabin tonight, gentlemen. Just, you know. <laughs> Completely disconnected. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> oh man, that took a turn. It, it does have application to to our field here. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I agree. Well, so that's a that's another question. So now that we're on the artificial intelligence, so honestly, and I'm asking this basically to to uh, Jim and to Nick, how many control projects have you been on that do not have self-tuning PIDs? About a billion. A lot. A billion, right? So if we're on the cusp of artificial intelligence. Why can't the HVAC world take a page from the process world and say, we're going to have self-tuning PIDs and just make, uh, uh, reduce my rate of hair loss for, you know, all the stress that goes with poorly tuned PIDs. Why can't they make that happen? It's low hanging fruit. <laughs> I guess. I, I think honestly, why that doesn't happen is because it would decrease their ongoing service revenue. Yeah. I was just going to say it's 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 like job or financially driven, I would yeah. assume. Yep. I mean, we either get, by having self-tuning PID loops, cut jobs, less money in the industry. I don't know. Yeah, I would I would say that's my theory. Would that be the Something one, like the, the biggest thing you'd change in building automation and control? Maybe self-tuning PID loops? I mean, is there ever an application, though, where like a self-tuning would maybe not in the HVAC industry in the HVAC world, but like, yeah, I guess self-tuning should just do it. It should work. I don't know. There'd probably be no reason to want it differently if it can do it right. Well, even maybe you don't have to do it on extremely complex, you know, cascaded control loops or anything like that. Right. But how about a simple room temperature control, self-tuning VAV box controller? Yep. Yep. No, I don't disagree. Yep. Do we have any interesting projects? We we covered some interesting projects, you know, from the past in our discussion about free cooling, about, you know, we, we've done this and this with chillers and cooling towers and so on and so forth. But is there any, any specific and past our, our uh, Cayuga Lake and Jim's explanation that we want to bring up or talk about? Well, I think, it, again, I go to the industrial sector, but yep. really um, – if you go to an industrial plant, just take a walk out to an industrial plant and look at the number of uh, dry coolers that are out there for all kinds of working fluid. It can be cutting fluid, you know, coolant for injection molding machines, you name it. When you, you know, usually if I go and I, I'm doing a, a energy audit at an industrial plant, I'll go the night before, take a drive around it, make sure, you know, I. I get an inventory of mm-hmm. how many cooling towers, how many uh, dry coolers, how many whatever are out there and then say, okay, what are the best ways to optimize 
these heat rejection devices or you know are they all working do they, do they need uh improvement and mm-hmm. you know they're always you know I've, how many how many uh jobs have we been on where there's a dry cooler and there's a garden sprinkler strapped to it you know that means <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not, cool it's not doing its job yeah yeah we're so, trying to apply some physics to that without that's having, right yeah. yeah and um i don't know i i just uh i i think in the industrial sector, your opportunities for free cooling, you know, are not as straightforward, but they're still there, uh, you know, to add a cooling tower and some uh, series heat exchangers to be able to, you know, do cascaded free cooling mm-hmm. is is definitely worthwhile. No, Mark, Mark I, I agree and add on to that. I mean, industrial is where you're going to find, likely to find year-round cooling requirements, which is going to increase the uh, odds that free cooling is going to be economically viable. And you also sometimes have higher supply temperature requirements, which combined with the year round cooling requirement helps make it feasible. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I agree. And, and, And you also still find and not very, not as many as there used to be, but many, many once through city water cooling loops where they take city water or groundwater, which is frowned upon now, uh, as well, and pump it up out of the ground, put it once through a process, and dump it back to drain uh, without the use of uh, return injection wells. Mm-hmm. So those kind of applications where there are aquifers available, they can still be used, but you have to put in an injection well to be able to put that water back in the ground. Otherwise, it's you know classified as water consumption. Right. Yep, and most likely against the sewer code of your local town. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this was a great discussion, guys. Um the, these these broad I don't know, this isn't like a, a super broad topic, but some of they're a little challenging to cover what you want to and you don't want to get too deep into the weeds and stuck on one part of it. But I think we did a good job kind of just outlining free cooling in general, discussing some cool applications and smart applications of it and how it's done and why it's done. Appreciate having you guys on and giving, you know, me and the listeners your expertise. And stay tuned. Our next episode, we will be discussing training and development of new energy auditors. So kind of switching gears, getting out of, you know, the free cooling and heat recovery projects and some of the project end of it and discussing what kind of education and training is best from maybe our professional's experience to help you succeed in the industry. So tune in for that episode. And for more information on us, Don't forget to check out our websites, www.vsenergy.us, www.appliedfacilitiescience.com, and www.dpasquale-eng.com. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in and have a great day, guys.